Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and mostly reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship Jesus had in mind. Enjoy and glean from the messages. When we come to the 10th step, we're really going to have to emphasize the concept that I've shared with you over and over again in previous steps, and that that is the 12 steps are really one uh, big step. Uh, I mean by that that the 12 steps all go together. It's the, probably the most difficult thing to understand, whether you're trying to teach folks the 12 steps or you're trying to walk them out yourself or live them out yourself, probably the most difficult concept, and yet probably the most important concept is that they, they all fit together. They all go together. It's a package deal. It's not just one step here, one step there. Now, admittedly, when you break them down, like we have in our series, as we've studied the 12 steps, we obviously start step one, week one, step two, week two, etc. That methodology can be useful in helping us to understand it, but if we're not careful, will compartmentalize the steps. And by that I mean, we say, oh, well, we just got step one here, or we'll focus in on step four. A lot of people are afraid of step four because that's the first time you begin to take a personal inventory. You begin to look at yourself. And so they, they say, well, I can deal with the first three steps, but step four is hard for me. Or we might talk about step five. There was a big roar in the religious world over step five back in the Oxford groups at the beginning of AA because it looked so similar, step five looked so similar to the liturgical church's confessionals that they, they had a big religious row about that saying these folks uh, can't, no one can hear your confession in step five besides a clergy member, a priest or someone of that nature and so they had a big argument back there but again, the, the whole attention was on step five. So we have a tendency to compartmentalize these steps. And it's useful when it comes to understanding the concepts that each step uh, deals with. And it's useful in trying to memorize or help us to understand. But in doing that, we run a risk of missing the big picture. It's kind of like we run a risk of not seeing the forest for the trees. Okay, you know when you're out in the woods and you're surrounded by the trees, you can't really appreciate the full panoramic view of the forest. You don't really understand everything that's involved. What I want us to do in step 10, and what step 10 actually does, is back you up and give you this panoramic view of everything you've studied so far, everything you've looked at, and it encompasses and incorporates all the previous steps, all nine steps. 
And it does so for a very important reason. Step 10 is critical in this respect, that unless you get that panoramic view, unless you get over just compartmentalizing the concepts of these steps, you won't really understand recovery. You'll have a tendency to fall back on the old definition of recovery, which is just simply abstinence or sobriety. In other words, people, as you know, think that they're in recovery just because they're not drinking or they're not drugging or they're not in their sexual addiction or they're not in their food addiction. They're not just because they've abstained from whatever behavior they're addicted to does not mean they're in recovery. But unless we see this panoramic view of what of the 12 steps, we can't really understand the concept of recovery. What is recovery? I've tried to help you by giving you a very simple, it's almost too simple, uh, simplistic definition of recovery that, in my estimation at least, puts all the steps together and requires all of the steps in this panoramic view that I'm talking about. And that is simply this. Recovery is when you are able to actually other person like Christ. Then, and only then, are you in re recovery. Now, to do so, obviously, you're not going to get stoned. You're not going to get drunk to go love another person like Christ. So abstinence is part of that. But you see, the recovery I'm talking about and the way I define recovery is much, much broader than just simply being sober. You can be sober and not love anybody. You can be a, quote, dry drunk. So recovery has this component, this panoramic view of it, and this component that I'm sharing with you, has this idea of the ultimate goal of your recovery is really the ultimate goal of your life, the ultimate purpose of your life. So what is it going to take for you to be able to love another person, to care about them, to have compassion? This is why when you read the big book, on the 10th step in particular, it follows right after those exceeding promises, those, those uh, very, quote, extravagant promises. When you first read them, we think, oh, these promises are, are beyond our comprehension. No one could ever live a life like this. To know what serenity really is, to have peace, to be comforted, to not worry about your past, to not fret about issues that used to just drive you crazy. No one could ever exist like that. Yes, they could. These are not extravagant promises. That's recovery. Well, where does that recovery come from? It's not just simply abstinence. See, just because you quit drinking or drugging or whatever your addiction is doesn't mean that you have the capability of loving another person like Christ. And even in those promises, they begin to hint, in the big book, they begin to hint at what recovery is by telling us that selfishness and self-centeredness, the one thing that they identify as the root of all our problems, has been dealt with. When you're in recovery, you're no longer selfish. When you're in recovery, you're not all self-centered and just worried about me, myself, mine. You have an attitude of tolerance and compassion towards others. 
You not only are aware of them, but you seek to minister to them continuously. So at the, as we turn that corner in step eight, and we began to concern ourselves with our relationships with others, remember what we did. We made another list. Actually, we just added to the list we had back in, in step four of the people that we'd harmed. And as we were honest about that and became willing to make amends with them, we completed step eight and moved on to step nine, where when it was possible for us to do so without harming them any further, we actually made amends with folks. Now, in our last session, we talked about actually making amends and what it's going to take to be able to do that. And I gave you a scripture in Matthew 18 about Jesus dealing with his own disciples, teaching them how to deal with that core issue of hatred. You see, if you, if you identify the, the root of all our problems as being selfishness and self-centeredness, and you kind of flip that root over, you're going to find on the other side resentment, bitterness, and hatred. The Bible calls it in Hebrews the root of bitterness. The opposite of the opposite side of that root of selfishness and self-centeredness is going to be hatred, resentment, and bitterness for this simple reason. When you're selfish and you're self-centered, you want everybody around you to care about you. You want everybody around you to know about you. You want them to appreciate you. You want them to minister to you. You want them to be nice to you. You want them to support you, to hold you up, to care for you to supply all your needs. Now, how realistic is that? Just stop and think about it a minute. How realistic is it for everybody around you to even think about you? See, this may come as a shock, but people around you don't care about you. Why not? Because they're born self-centered too. The only persons they care about are themselves. They don't really care about you. They cannot naturally love you. Now, they say they love you with that humanistic love that is not unconditional love, like God's love. It's conditional. That's the, I'll love you if you behave yourself. If you don't behave yourself, I'll quit loving you. They'll love you with that humanistic love that is kind of the passive love. It sits back and says, well, as soon as you prove to me that you're going to take care of me and you're going to like me, then I'll love you. It's not the initiating love of God that says, I'm going to love you like you are right now and I'm going to take the first step. That old natural love that self-centered people have is that love that we sing songs about and they make movies about. It's called the romantic love. Now, that romantic love is not a consistent, eternal love. It's an inconsistent, oh, I fall in love with you one day and I fall out of love with you the next day, depending, of course, on your behavior, etc. God's love is not a romantic love. It's an intelligent love. It does consistently, daily, what's best for that other person, not just seeking to try to make them feel good so they'll reciprocate and make you feel good. So this kind of love that we're talking about stems from the fact that we are not self-centered any longer. Now, way back in step four, I gave you a critical key point 
that you need to review on a daily basis, and that is this, that God took you, a natural person, who was self-centered, born into this world naturally. You came in from natural procreation into this world, born as a descendant of your parents, who were born as descendants of their parents, all the way back to Adam in the garden, and therefore you were born self-centered with a total inability to love other people. The only person you could think about is yourself. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his love, and because of his grace, did a miracle. He caused you to be born again. He caused you to be born from above. He caused you to be born of his spirit so that you can inherit his nature and be just like him. So you can be love. So you can actually love another person. Now, when we turn that corner and in our understanding and we realize our true identity, having been born from above, we realize that we are inseparably joined to God, who is love. And it determines, that realization determines our ability to love others. Now, when we turn the corner in the steps, is in step nine, or step eight. Remember what we did? Having gone through all seven steps, now we concern ourselves with other people. The single biggest obstacle to us concerning ourselves with other people is the natural self-centered tendencies we still have. Even though we've been born again, even though we've been born of the Spirit, even though we are these brand new persons in Christ, we still live in the same body. We have the same old body we were born with. And in that body is all of the conditioning. In our memory, is in our minds, in our natural minds, and that subconscious mind, or what the Bible calls the heart, is every experience you've ever had, good, bad, or ugly, stored. All of your coping strategies, all of your beliefs, they're all stored there. The Bible simply calls that the flesh, which has, by the way, a mind of its own that is enmity against God. The flesh that lives in this physical body with us as a brand new person hates God. It not only hates God, it hates all that belongs to God. So it hates the whole creation. So here we got this problem. We were born naturally of the spirit, or naturally of our parents, as self-centered and therefore hating, even though we try to cover it up because we didn't get real about it until the fourth step. We have this natural bent on hating in the flesh, but here we are, brand new persons now. We've been born of the Spirit. We've been born, and we want to love because that's who we are. But our natural tendencies and our natural conditioning says, no, you're not going to love, you're going to hate. So there's this internal war going on inside of us, an internal war that needs to be addressed. That's what steps four through seven were really about. In step four, you began to identify the resentment, bitterness, the hatred, the situations. And remember the trip in? Remember how we took a trip in on the, to really do a fourth step? 
you looked at your own behavior, you examined what you did or didn't do or what you said or didn't say in a particular situation, then you looked at your emotions and you got honest about that hatred that was motivating you in the flesh, then you looked at your belief systems, your thoughts, your thinking underlying those emotions, and you came up with the false assumptions that you were basing your worth as a person on, I'll be worthy if, and you were freely, when you do that trip in, you're honest with God about the root of the problem, which is that unbelief about who you are as a worthy, loving person. At that point, in step four, you've really identified your shortcomings, your character defects, your wrongs, all the sins of the flesh. And at that point, you go on to step five and say, okay, God, this is reality. This is my flesh. Now, I know it's not me. I know you've made me a brand new person, but this is my flesh, and it still exists in this physical body of mine with its own mind that not only hates you, it hates everybody else. And you were honest in step five with God. You confessed to him, you agreed with him, you spoke the same thing, that's what confess means, with him about your flesh. Step six, you were willing, you were entirely willing to have God remove it. You see, when you dance around in step four and you cover up those character defects, especially the hatred, especially the, the self-centeredness of your wrongs, and you cover it up like kitty litter, then you don't have to really confess it. You're not really entirely ready to have God remove it. But when you do steps four and five and it's glaring, your faults are glaring in your face, then you become willing to have God remove, to get rid of it. Also, when you've tried on your own, say, well, I can handle this. I'll just cover this. I'll quit hating this person. From now on, I'm not going to hate him. I'm going to be nice to him. Even if I don't like him, I'm going to be nice to him. And that fails repeatedly over and over. You finally become entirely ready to have God do for you what you can't do for yourself. In step seven, you humbly ask him, Remove it. Remember the prayer of David that we talked about? Recorded in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God. That was a cry. That was a step seven from David to remove his shortcomings, his character defects, his failures. Now, when God deals with your flesh, four, five, six, and seven, now you are ready to turn the corner. In our last session, we talked about Matthew 18, where Jesus tells us you're going to have to deal with your flesh before you can deal with other people. Before you can even be willing to make amends, much less make amends with them, you're going to have to deal with that flesh. Specifically, you're going to have to deal with that hatred. And we talked about the painful process, the self-inflicted pain, just like cutting off your own hand, cutting off your own foot, poking out your own eye, for you to confess to God that hatred is painful. But it's in that point, as you confess to God your hatred and you receive his forgiveness for your hatred, regardless of what other people have or haven't done to you, you're receiving his forgiveness for your, your hatred, then he sends it away. It's gone. And he replaces hatred with love. See, that's where love comes from. 
It comes from God, who is love, but how does he give it to us? He gives it to us replacing the hatred. This is why we become willing to forgive others. Why? Because we have received forgiveness from God. You see, you can't really, as I shared with you in the example of Earl in our last session, you can't really forgive someone unless you are forgiven. can't give what you don't have. So when you're forgiven for that hatred of the flesh, then you're really ready to make amends for those people that you've harmed. Now, the big book talks a lot about various scenarios as you do that. I'm not going to get into all that except this one. I want to mention one thing about it. If you ever go to make amends with someone, having not forgiven them, if you, if you try to go make amends with someone who's hurt you or someone you have hurt and you've got this bad relationship between you without seeking forgiveness for hating them, it'll blow up in your face. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. You're better off not trying to make amends. Because if you go to them seeking their forgiveness, seeking their response to you, you've missed the whole boat. You've missed it altogether. That's not the point of step nine. Step nine is you go to them to give forgiveness. Now, in order to do that, you've got to have received it from God. If you go to them with that in mind, having cut off your own hand, poked out your own eye, cut off your own foot, you've dealt with your hatred issues, you go to them empowered by the Spirit, you go to them directed by God, then their response to you is of no consequence whatsoever. Because this issue is not between you and them, really. Ultimately, it's an issue between you and God. Now, when you've accomplished that, as the big book said, if we are painstaking about this process, the process I just described, when you accomplish that, then the promises can be fully experienced. Then you will understand what it means when you say that you're experiencing recovery. Doesn't have anything to do, really, with abstinence. It's a minor, minor issue. It has everything to do with relationships. Your relationship first between you and God, your relationship towards yourself, and finally your relationship to others. Now, when you enter into recovery, you've got step 10. Well, what are we going to do with step 10 then? Now we're entering into recovery. Well, if you read step 10, their suggestion on the 10th step is just simply that you continue. I would underline that first word of the step. Continue. Continue what? Continue everything we've just been talking about. Now, I know it's taken us 15 or 20 minutes to kind of review these steps, especially the vital steps of steps 4 through 7, but you're going to continue in those on a daily basis. That means you're not going to take seven weeks to continue in them studying the steps every week and say, okay, this week I've done step one, next week I've done step two. 
you're not going to continue in a seven days doing one step per day. You're going to back up and you're going to get that panoramic view of recovery. And you're going to do all seven steps daily. It's going to become a new life, a new lifestyle. You're doing all seven steps daily. And your big question every day, all right, God, who do you want me to serve today? Who do you want me to love like you today? That's your big question every day. That's the 10th step question. Now, you're going to continue to take this inventory of yourself. You're going to continue to answer all of your own personal needs and all the conflicts that you have every day, you're going to continue to apply the gospel to your needs on a daily basis and turn the corner asking God, who can I serve today? I highly recommend, even though I don't do it in, in this session here, I'm not taking the time to actually read the big book on each one of these steps, but I and you read the big book and their discussion of step 10. It is phenomenal. They did an excellent job there describing what recovery looks like. What recovery really looks like is on a daily basis, you're doing all nine steps. On a daily basis, you're affirming your relationship to God, you're settling your relationship to yourself, and you're concerning yourself with the relationship that you have to others every day. It becomes, therefore, on a daily basis that you're doing those nine steps, it becomes a lifestyle. So step 10 really is a lifestyle. You continue to take that moral inventory, you continue to inventory your own life, and you promptly admit when you're wrong. Now, we like to twist that around a little bit, being naturally a little defensive and a little self-centered, we like to say, all right, I'm going to do this moral inventory, and if I find anything bad here, I'm going to tell God about it. Listen, if you do a real moral inventory, if you do a real trip in, there's never going to be a time that you don't find some false assumption in your flesh. There's never going to be a time you don't see some character defect in your flesh. You're going to have to look at those character defects, those false assumptions, those destructive, sinful emotions on a daily basis and identify that as your flesh. Why? Because the flesh never goes away. As long as we inhabit these physical bodies, for as long as we're running around on this earth in these earth suits, we're going to have the flesh. Our awareness of that is one half of what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. The other half, of course, is to identify ourselves as the new person God has created, capable of loving others. So every day you're going to see not only that you are this brand new person in Christ, but you're also going to see that you still live in an earth suit with the flesh. And so in the tenth step, they emphasize that trip in again. You're going to be doing that trip in daily. You're going to be examining yourself over and over again 
and you're going to see the flesh and the character defects of the flesh. You're going to identify them clearly. They're not going to freak you out and say, oh my God, there's hatred again. Expect it. Don't be worried about it. Expect it. As a matter of fact, I, I give this little rule of thumb for people to operate under. When you get mad, you can try this later on tonight or tomorrow, whenever you're going to get mad, and you're going to get mad, somebody's going to do something to irritate you. Or somebody's going to not do something they should have to irritate you. Somehow you're going to get mad. As soon as you get mad, as soon as you feel that anger build up, you've got about a 30-second window of opportunity. 30 seconds later, that anger is going to turn to hatred and be rationalized, justified, and stuffed down in that subconscious mind, what the Bible calls the heart. And the flesh is off to the races. See, try this little exercise. How many of you have ever been hurt by someone, someone said something bad about you, or they did something against you, or they let you down in some way. And instantly, you got angry. 30 seconds later, it turned to hatred. But what do, we, what do we do at that point? What's natural for us? The natural thing for us to do to deal with that. They made me mad. And so the natural thing for me to do is to justify myself prove to myself and to others, anybody who would listen to me, and especially to God, that it's not my fault, that I wasn't wrong, that I didn't do anything wrong, that I'm an innocent victim here, and I'm off to the races, justifying myself when God's already done everything necessary to justify me. But I don't believe that. That's not good enough. I've got to justify myself. And in order to justify myself, I have to criticize the person that made me mad. I have to run around saying, you wouldn't believe what he did. You wouldn't believe how she acted. And I've got to make a big deal out of it to other people. You see, that's what our natural response is. Now, that's going to happen to you tomorrow. Somebody's going to do sage tomorrow. Somebody's going to do something to really irritate you. And immediately, you're going to need to do that trip in. Immediately, you're going to have to get honest with God about it. See, I quit playing this game a long time ago about, well, God, you know, I'm just angry here and I'm suffering. No, I get honest with God about it. You know, I hate that person. That is my flesh. Wants to murder that person. I want to choke that person in my flesh. When I get real about that, doing a trip in, I can get honest with God about it. He's the one that can do something about it. He can forgive me for hating that person in the first place, send those sinful emotions away, replace that hatred with love so that I can be willing to make amends with him and direct me and empower me by his spirit to actually make direct amends. You see, it doesn't have to take weeks and months. It's instantaneous. So on a daily basis, we're going through this process every day. On a daily basis, we're continuing to take a moral inventory, and we are promptly admitting when we are wrong, not if we're wrong, when we are wrong. Because every day you're going to have the flesh that's going to bow up on you. You're going to have the flesh that's going to seek itself its own benefit at the cost of others. You're going to have the flesh that you're going to have to fight with. 
That flesh is your worst enemy. Not Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He's bad enough. It's not this funky world system we live in. It's going to hell in a handbasket. It's your own flesh. Why? Because it lives in this same body with you. So daily, we're going to deal with that flesh. That's what the 10th step's all about. We're going to deal with that flesh on a daily basis. That means we're going to learn to do a trip in in a matter of minutes, not agonizing all day long or for week on week, but in a matter of minutes. Minutes, we're going to be able to identify the nasty characteristics of those flesh, that fleshly response we had, and to agree with God about it, and to receive his forgiveness and have that cleansing so that we can go on and fulfill our purpose in loving others. Because that's really why we're here. So really the emphasis I want you to see, the panoramic view here I want you to see of recovery, is by the time you get to step 10, you have some extravagant promises. As a matter of fact, in the big book, they even make this statement. We don't have any temptation about booze anymore. Now here we're talking about alcoholics. They say, liquor's not our problem anymore. It's gone. We don't have a desire for it. It's, we won't recognize it as our problem. Well, what's your problem then? It's that stinking self-centered flesh. Not whether you drink booze or not, it's that stinking self-centered flesh. That's the problem. They've realized it. And so they don't have the same temptations they had. They're not running around trying to hide. You know, you've heard of people in recovery, recovering alcoholics, for instance, oh, they should never go to a bar, or they shouldn't go to a party, or they shouldn't go to a wedding, or any place where alcohol is served. It would be too much for them. Read the 10th step. We have absolute liberty because alcohol has lost its power over us. We're not running from temptation. We're not trying to hide. Alcohol has lost its power. Well, how did it lose its power? Because the root of alcoholism, the root of the addiction, that self-centered flesh is being dealt with. So the alcohol is no longer a problem. Now, when you get to the 10th step, these extravagant promises become real. So it's, it's important that we're able to back up now and see how the application of all nine of these steps lived out on a daily basis produces a new lifestyle in us, a completely different lifestyle than we had before. Regardless of the substance that's abused, it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or sex or any, any other issue, regardless of whatever's been a abused, whatever was we were addicted to, that's no longer the issue. What's foremost in our mind, day in and day out, is dealing with our flesh. Specifically, having God deal with our sin problem on a daily basis. Now, in the tenth of the big book, they talk about the fact that there's no cure for alcoholism. You're not cured in the sense, oh, well, good, I've got to the 10th step, let's go have a beer. Okay, that's, that's not what they're talking about when they say alcohol is no longer a problem. What they're talking about when they say alcohol is no longer a problem is that you have a daily reprieve from the self-centeredness that produced the addiction in the first place. 
That's what you have in recovery. A daily, day by day, minute by minute, one day at a time, reprieve from the addiction. What guarantees that is not the fact that you have somehow arrived. What guarantees it is your understanding of the process, which includes those first nine steps. Your understanding of how that becomes an integral part of your daily life is what gives you that reprieve from the addiction. Now, the way to, to put it simplistically, as I said before, I'm oversimplifying here, but really, the daily reprieve comes from your ability to love other people like Christ. That's what the daily reprieve comes from. From your ability to live out on a daily basis in practical, everyday life, the life of Christ in relating to other people. That's really what recovery is. Now, I know I'm running a risk here, so I want to put a little disclaimer in at this point. When I say your reprieve is contingent upon you're living out daily the life of Christ and loving other people, immediately your flesh, that old conditioning, that self-centered conditioning, starts its process. And the first thing that's going to hit your mind when I say living out daily the life of Christ and loving other people are going to be all kinds of religious examples your flesh is going to want to dress itself up and take itself to church and act religious for your recovery. Your flesh is going to want to make itself look good as a religious person. So let me guard against that. Let me warn you about that. Recovery does not mix with religion. As a matter of fact, if you break religious at this point, you've begun a downhill slide into relapse. There are two things recovery really doesn't mix with, and we, we say this all the time in our halfway house in our recovery program at Safe Harbor. There are two things that recovery never mixes with. One is romance, and the other is religion. Those are the two R's you can't mix with recovery. Those two things, romance and religion, will kill recovery. Nip it in the bud. See, romance is that humanistic love. Remember, we're not talking about humanistic love. We're talking about divine love. And religion is a pseudo-spirituality. It's a fake spirituality. Recovery demands absolute spirituality, authentic faith, lived out in our relationships that are genuine. So religion and romance don't and are the enemies, really, of recovery. But by the time we get to the 10th step now, we're learning to do all nine steps every day, so we are developing a new lifestyle. The 10th step, actually, from the panoramic view of the 10th step, is just simply a description of a new lifestyle, a new way to live. Whereas before you lived self-centeredly, now you're living for the sake of serving others. That's why you'll find also the statement in the 10th in the step, you'll, you'll find associated with the prayer there, God, show us who you want us to love today. Show us and teach us how to be of maximum service to others. So there's a, a very strong emphasis 
on turning that relational corner and being able to love others. That's why I define it simplistically as recovery is your ability to love others, your ability to care about others. Now, biblically, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 11, I think. He, or, no, it was chapter 12. He was talking about the same concept when he says, in essence, that when you love another person, you fulfill all. Everything that the law demands, not just the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, but the over 1,000 commandments in the New Testament, everything the law demands, everything God's law demands is fulfilled, is completed when you love another person. So when we enter into this lifestyle of recovery that's characterized by our ability to love others like Christ, we're entering into a brand new lifestyle, a new way of living that is prescribed in the scriptures as a lifestyle of grace. When you enter into a lifestyle of grace, the crowning virtue of that lifestyle is your ability to love other people, just like Christ. And so the 10th step tells you you're there. Now, how do you know that you're there? Because you deal with your stuff, you deal with your junk, you deal with that flesh on a daily basis for the purpose of being able to love other people. That's why you're doing it. You see, in order for you to love anyone else, you're going to have to deal with that flesh. And when I say deal with that flesh, you all realize what I'm talking about is not you. Even as a brand new person created in Christ, dealing with your flesh specifically, I'm talking about you allowing God to change your want-to's to change you from the inside out, to deal with your flesh. You're looking for him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Remember those promises we read last time in our last session? The very last one was you begin to realize, after you've done these nine steps and you enter into the tenth step, you begin to realize God is doing for you what you have never been able to do for yourself. He's doing it. You're along for the ride. So when we talk about the 10th step, you know, we're talking about backing up and seeing this panoramic overview of recovery. We're talking about what recovery actually looks like. Yes, they emphasize in the 10th step that important, that all-important soul-searching that we did in the 4th step and again in the 8th step in preparation for our being able to love others in the ninth step. All of that happens in the, in the tenth step on a daily basis. So we're going to continue in recovery to walk in recovery on a daily basis. That's really all the tenth step is about. It's living out the first nine steps every day. Now, let me give you some encouragement about this because there's two things that we naturally have a tendency to worry about. And before we quit tonight in our session, I, I want you to have this encouragement because people get nervous about this. And when, when I lay out what recovery looks like, I use some pretty uh, important terms, but nonetheless, they can be easily misunderstood 
biblical terms, etc. And as I warned you a moment ago, you can get religious about this in your thinking. So I want to encourage you along this line. When you've been painstaking, as the big book says, about the first nine steps, God is already working in you, and you know it. You can sense that. Ultimately, actually, when you look at all of the steps, God's involved with each step. He's named in several steps, actually named in steps, but he's always involved and has been involved in those steps all along. So this whole process, beginning with step one, right on through step nine, God's been doing. That's why you're where you're at, because God's been doing for you, as the big book says, what you couldn't do for yourself. He did not wait for you to take this course to begin doing that. He has been doing that all along and will continue to do that. Doing for you what you can't do for yourself. Why? Because he is love. See, he's not withholding his love and waiting for you to get it together in the 12 steps. The only reason you're getting anything together in the 12 steps is because he's loving you. He's already at work in you. His spirit, we're going to emphasize in the next step, in the 11th step, his spirit has already implemented, initiated a plan, his plan, working it out in your life. He's already at work. Okay, do not get the idea that God is up there somewhere removed, waiting on me to be in a certain position or think a certain thought or feel a certain feeling or behave in a certain way and then he'll help me recover. Okay, get that out of your mind. That's looking at it totally backwards. The reason that you are this far along in your recovery, the reason that you are even understanding what you understand now about recovery is precisely because God has been working it in you. He is the one that's in charge of it. Now, because it's his plan, we are assured, biblically, and here's your comfort, in Philippians, he, which began a good work in you, i.e. recovery, will perform it unto the day. In other words, he's going to continue to work in you. Now, I know, you're like me, you might say, okay, well, God is working in me. Okay, I'm, maybe I'll, I'll buy that concept a little bit. God's working in me. But he's late. He hasn't been working quick enough. And he needs to be doing this other stuff. So we have a natural tendency because we've always seen ourselves as the center of the universe, and we were born with this self-centered nature that wanted to be like the Most High, we've got this habit in our thinking of evaluating how God is doing it and judging whether or not he's doing it well enough to suit us. And always, 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 he'll be late, and according to our plan and our own judgment, he will not be doing the things we think he should. Okay, So we've got this 
negative mindset about God working in us in the first place. What I'm telling you, and I'm warning you against that. Because here's your assurance. Your assurance is God is right now working in you, has been working in you, and will continue to work in you. It's not a matter of you cajoling him, begging him, pleading with him to get him to do something for you. He's already doing it. The only problem is we don't see that. Why? Because we've got this natural idea of what it would look like if God were working in us, and we've got these natural plans we've developed on how he should work according to our schedule. God doesn't work that way. You see, God is working in you according to his timetable, according to his plan, according to his purposes, according to his power for his glory, not yours. He is continuing to work in you. But you can rest in that. You can rest assured that God will continue to work in you. Why? Because he is love. So he's working in you, recovering you, even as we're talking now. Oh, I know there's going to be all kinds of questions that you have in your mind. Well, where was God when he did this and that? And There's all kinds of uh, vagueness when I say God is working in you. So I don't see God working. I know, I know you don't see him working in you. The assurance I'm giving you is that he is. He is working. He has promised to do that and will continue to work in you. So the revelation that you've had up to this point about your recovery and how you are recovering in your life is a result, a direct result, of his working in you. And he's not going to stop here. He's going to continue on, on a daily basis. Now, there are many obstacles we have to believing that. We're going to address that in the next step. Step 11, where we seek more intimate understanding and knowledge of how God is working in us through his spirit. Step 10 just says you've, you've entered into the realm of the spirit. You've completed all the little components in the first nine steps. You've understood them and you all those little components. And now in step 10, you're putting them all together, stepping back, looking at the panoramic view of this is recovery. This is what it is. The emphasis, of course, in step 10 is, is negative because the most glaring thing we have to deal with daily is our own flesh. The most glaring thing we have to deal with daily is the continuation and the, the existence of that flesh in us. And so step 10 calls us to deal with that according to the provisions God has made in the first nine steps. So when you get back and you start looking at an overview at this point, I'm going to give you this little homework assignment. I want you to just simply write out the steps. Just do your own review of them, all nine, up to the tenth step. Write them out in the order that we've talked about them before. And look how the flow of these steps has led you to a lifestyle of recovery. The flow of these steps have led you to a lifestyle of grace. The flow of these steps have led you to a lifestyle of love like Christ for others. Okay, go back and look at those steps and look at that flow and be able to identify that flow in your life to one degree or another every day. And when you do, 
when you see how that's working every day, you'll be amazed. You'll step back and say, man, God's doing a lot of stuff. I didn't realize he was doing that much stuff, but he's doing a lot of stuff in my life. Remember, the natural conditioning is, well, God didn't do anything in me yet because I haven't acted like I should or I haven't felt like I should or I haven't believed like I should or whatever. That's the natural bent. Set that aside for this homework assignment and look at that flow of those nine steps in your life to see how God is actually working in your life. Now, you might think it a little bit weird that I have to tell you that I have to stand here and tell you to look at God working in your life. A, because you don't believe he is, and B, because it doesn't look like it to you. If you do the 10th step, you'll begin to see it. You'll begin to see God is working in my life. He is putting these obstacles in, in my path to make me conform to what he wants me to do. He is opening these doors in my life, in these relationships, for my purpose. You see, there is nothing in your life, no detail that is accidental. No detail that is not part of his plan. You just don't see how it all connects, that's all. You don't see how it all fits together. One day, when we get rid of this earth suit that we're living in, one day when we finally get free from these physical bodies, our adoption is complete, we receive a glorified body, we have no more flesh to deal with, ever again, you'll be able to see clearly, piece it together, just exactly how God was working in you all along for his recovery. You see, recovery is God's plan for humanity. It's not just a little side program that he allowed for drunks to stay sober. Recovery is God's plan for all the human race. And he's in the process of creating a brand new human race, setting that human race free to live out the life of his only begotten son, Jesus. You're free in that recovery to be Christ to others. That's the purpose of your recovery. Tenth step gives you a chance to step back and just envision yourself being on a high mountain and being able to look out over your life and see how those, those first nine of the 12 steps have led you to this point to give you a vision, a personal vision of your own recovery. And know this, he's not done. You're just scratching the surface. You're just beginning to see what he's doing in you. He's happy to do it, and he's glorified in it. Take a break on that high place. Look at your life and know that God has been working in you to bring you to this point. All right, we're going to quit here tonight. We'll give you guys a little opportunity to take a break, and then Tom's going to do a little process. So let's quit.
Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 